What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stempier, thanks for tuning in. This week on the show, we are discussing the fact that life is hard. I'll never forget when I first learned about the Buddhist philosophy that life in and of itself is suffering because I remember thinking how bleak that is. But the logic behind it is life is a continual state of loss. You lose your health. You lose your loved ones. You lose your mind. You know, that's what it is. But the finite nature of life is what makes it so fantastic because it forces us to live as opposed to exist. And that's why I wanted to have our guest on this week. We are talking with Kieran Setia, who is a professor of philosophy at MIT and author of the previous bestseller called Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. And this week on the show, we're talking about his brand new book called Life is Hard. But the subtitle is something that also really got me, which is how philosophy can help us find our way. What I liked about Kieran's book and what we're going to talk about is it's not just his opinion, which in and of itself is valid, but he also brings in his massive amount of knowledge regarding philosophy and philosophers, both ancient and modern. It's a wide-ranging discussion where we talk about a lot of things from chronic pain to loneliness to death and more, but it is not a morbid discussion. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. It's how to cope with that. What is the best way to deal with the simple fact that life is hard? And so I hope this will help you out wherever you are in this journey. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. By the way, we're putting short clips on YouTube. We actually hired somebody to do it and make the clips nice and all that stuff. So if you just search for Smart People Podcast on YouTube, you could sign up for the channel and you can get kind of those four, five, six minute clips from previous episodes of the best of. You might enjoy it. Go subscribe, help us out. Let's get into our conversation with Kieran Setia about his new book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Enjoy. You focus a lot on dealing with reality as opposed to changing your reality. Is there a reason you chose that aspect as opposed to more of a, hey, here's what you should go do to make your life and reality different and better? That's a great question because I think there's a, a risk when you write a book called Life is Hard that is about facing up to the difficulties of life that it will seem passive or 
uh, about capitulating to the difficulties of life. And that isn't the idea. The idea is that that ultimately one tries to change or come to terms with or grapple with the difficulties of life. But the key idea is that that's something we can't really do in a serious way until we've taken seriously and paid attention to the ways in which life is difficult. There's there's a, a moment I describe in the book as something you might have experienced, but not surprisingly, it's something from my own experience where I, you know you go to someone with a problem and you describe what's happening, like some something's gone wrong at work or you're having a problem in a relationship, and they immediately go into assurance advice mode. They immediately start telling you, look, here's what you do, or it's going to be fine, it's not a problem. And that can feel like a kind of denial. In fact, it is a kind of denial. It's a disavowal of what you're going through. And in itself, that is a a kind of failure of consolation. Actually sharing the reality with yourself and with others is consoling. Kind of bringing intelligibility to what you're going to is part of really coming to terms with it. But it's also true that that's the first step to figuring out how am I going to deal with this situation? You can't really see how to feel about your situation or what to do about it, what kind of change is possible until you've been honest about the reality you're facing. And of course, the incentive not to be honest about difficult things is not is totally understandable. I mean, it's painful sometimes to really dwell on them. And, and you can see why people sort of flee from that. They don't want to face up to them. But it's it's very difficult to live a really meaningful life engaged with reality if you don't acknowledge it to begin with. What do you say and what does philosophy say about how we can sink into and and recognize more the realities of our, of our suffering? The way it plays out in, in my thinking is sort of case specific. I don't think there's a, a sort of one great insight that will solve all of the hardships of life. It really is about paying attention to, to different things that are difficult. And and one that led me into writing the book, it's not the what the whole book is about, but there's a chapter where I talk about my experience with chronic pain. And that that's a case where I think, um, what's amazing to me in a way is how much there is to say about chronic pain and why it's bad. So you might start by thinking, look, pain, bad, end of story. Like There's nothing interesting about this. But actually, when you reflect on why pain is bad, especially why chronic pain is bad, this is something that you know millions of people deal with, the explanation of why it's bad gives you a sense of how to grapple with it. So one of the ways in which it's bad is that it's not just bad in itself, but like when you're in pain, your attention is brought to your body and your ability to engage with other things is impeded. So the badness of pain has a lot to do with getting in the way of other good things. And so that gives you strategies for thinking about how to deal with pain. The question is not, how do I make it go away? But how do I manage to engage with other people despite the fact that there's this background hum of pain. Or another kind of thing that that a lot of people deal with, with with chronic pain, for instance, is the sense that moment to moment, it's kind of okay. You can you can have a pretty good day while experiencing some background level of pain. But the anxiety about the future and the sense that it, it kind of looms over you is very difficult. And that kind of the harms of of dread and anticipation are a big part of why chronic pain or any kind of extended pain or uncertain pain is very difficult. So that's a case where, again, that that helps to orient you towards that kind of difficulty by saying, okay, uh, I mean, the, the advice is in a way obvious, but it's like, it's like the Kimmy Schmidt rule. You know, you can stand anything for 10 seconds. You know, t- take it one day at a time. Try to parcel out uh, your time horizons in a way that enables you to think about having a good day or a good afternoon or a good week, rather than looking further into the future. So it, it, it's a kind of a way of understanding why it's important dealing with difficulty. Pain is the kind of paradigm example. It applies to others too, to think about living in the present. So for me, those were cases where I thought, look, I, I could have just said pain, bad. Is there a cure? Doesn't seem like it can be cured. Okay, suck it up. But actually reflecting on the experience helped to provide avenues for for tackling it. But also in itself, there's a kind of consolation. I mean, I just think just the sheer fact of understanding what's going on when you're dealing with something difficult, often the, the difficulties of life feel also kind of incomprehensible. Like, what is happening to me? Why is this so difficult? And that, again, is a way in which um, you're sort of adding insult to the injury of dealing with difficulty and that you, you also feel kind of lost and confused. And again, that's what kind of philosophical reflection comes in. So, you know, I think it plays out differently with loneliness or grief or failure, different different descriptions 
are useful for different kinds of hardships. But um, that's a kind of case study where, for me, it's very orienting to really look closely at what's going on. Yeah. It, as you mentioned that, I earlier this year had back surgery and for six months had, I mean, the worst pain I've ever had. And for a yeah. few of those weeks, it was literally unbearable. And I remember going through all of that and all the things you mentioned. And a big part of it was this recognition that I potentially could lose what I know of as my life. And that that weight is so immense and so difficult, it can fundamentally shift the way you view your life forever. And so I think it's also, to your point, it's an opportunity to sit back and ask what do I want from this life, but also to recognize if I get through this, how can I see the world differently and how can I be better because of it? I totally agree with that. And I, I think that's a case, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you went through that. Actually, I mean, that sounds really, how is it? How are you now? I'm, I'm it, awesome. I'm, I played okay. three softball games last night and I'm only six months removed. So it's one of those moments where that's why this really resonated because prior to this, I mean, I'm 40 and I hadn't had something that really made me question like the things that I enjoy most could be gone due to a seemingly innocuous little thing. So how can that reality shift the way I live going forward? Yeah, no, no, I, th I think like t taking these kinds of hardships as an opportunity to reflect is really crucial. I mean, it, it, th there's ways in which reflection can misfire. There's a kind of, there's sometimes an urge to say, well, it must be for the best, or this, there must be a reason for everything. And and sometimes, no, this just sucks and there really isn't a reason. But nevertheless, by reflecting on what you can learn from difficulty, there's the possibility of of, uh, of making something of it or coming to terms with it. And for instance, you know, a, a kind of experience people often have dealing with things like, like kind of extended pain or pain where they're not sure if it's going to go away is having to figure out whether they should keep saying, hey, I'll just try the next cure, the next cure, the next cure, go from doctor to doctor, hoping to fix it. Or whether sometimes that kind of seeking for solutions is a mistake. And, and the, the shift to saying, no, what I'm going to do is accept that this is a background part of my life and think, how do I change my picture of what a good life for me would be so that this is part of it, but nevertheless, life is satisfying and meaningful. And those are the kinds of questions that I think you can't really grapple with if your attention just flees from difficulty. It, it sort of, when you just turn away from it and wish that it would go away, that kind of fear response. Recognizing life is hard, which I think is one of the things your book does obviously really well and calls out for a lot of people. And then two, understanding that the immediate reaction doesn't need to just be to fix it. I will say, though, let's take this idea of pain. There's also, and I believe the mental anguish we go through is much more excruciating for most people than the physical anguish. And I feel like that is something that's often harder to fix, harder to justify, harder to quantify. What do you know or what have you learned or what is, do philosophers tell us about dealing with really the mental difficulties of life, which is what it is to be human? Well, I... I think there's there's uh, part of the the what I think is sort of philosophical wisdom of dealing with the the mental difficulties of life is that there are often forms of wisdom like often what's going on when we deal with difficulties like loneliness or grief is something that involves an acknowledgement of the difficulties of life and that acknowledgement is while painful a good thing I mean there's a kind of distinction to draw here that I think is really orienting between just feeling happy and actually living a good life. And philosophers often draw this distinction with kind of kooky thought experiments, like they imagine someone plugged into a simulation, they're the only person plugged in, they don't know it's all fake, and they're having this stream of experiences, and it, it might feel great, but they're not actually engaging with reality or other people at all. But I think that same distinction between sort of how you feel at a given time and whether you're really engaging meaningfully with reality comes up in relation to lots of hardships, like the the suffering that we experience in grief, it's not like it would just be better if we didn't feel bad about the loss of people we love. Like th that's a pure negative. It's part of something meaningful and important in life. And uh, similarly, when we feel furious about injustice in the world, we feel a kind of anger 
about injustice in the world. There's a wisdom in that negative emotional response. So it's unfor- the circumstance is unfortunate, but it's not like the feeling bad about it is necessarily negative. So this isn't the end of the story, but a starting point for thinking about the negative mental experiences, kind of negative emotional reactions, is to be open to the possibility that there's wisdom in them, that they're telling us something about how we should react to the world and that something is wrong and or, and that sometimes that's the side effect of of something good as in grief i think is the pain of grief is intimately bound up with the value of love and the meaningful connections we have to people or in the case of injustice it's our, our kind of moral integrity is is bound up with the 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 anger and negative feelings we have there so that's one kind of thing to say i mean the other is that that some of that mental difficulty comes from incomprehensibility, the sense that uh, experiences, we, we can't make sense of them. They feel um, unintelligible and we can't, we don't, we feel confused basically. And I, I think even just thinking through, why do I feel bad? What is, am I onto something? Is this a mistake? What am I responding to in the world? That sense of intelligibility is already uh, kind of a step towards living a more meaningful a more engaged a, a better life and final thing i'll say is it, it's often a step towards connecting with others so so one of the ways in which this kind of mental difficulty you're pointing to is really hard is it's isolating it, it you know when you're chronic pains another good example grief can be an example where you withdraw from other people and facing up to difficulty and being able to grapple with and express it can be a form of consolation, both in the intelligibility to oneself and in the capacity to connect with others and comfort them or be comforted by them to sort of connect with other people around the difficulties of life. So that that's a, a, another kind of way in which I think the, the philosophical instinct to kind of look, uh, as it were, ruthlessly at reality can be uh, a path towards uh, a, a kind of a better way of living. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com smart. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. 
Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. It's almost like because suffering is universal, it is the one of the primary ways we know we can connect despite differences. We don't want to connect on that level. And it'd be nicer, in my opinion, if the things we could connect on were happiness and joy and love and all the good things. But why is it that pain and suffering truly is the thing that will allow you to connect much faster than any of its opposites? It's really interesting, actually. I think there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. It's true that being willing to share vulnerability or pain is one of the ways in which you can most rapidly feel a connection with someone else talking about difficult things and certainly writing about my own experience in this book like one of the ways in which that's been incredible is that other people have said oh i also deal with that or that relates to this other kind of difficult experience and you have these moments of sudden uh kind of intimacy that that wouldn't happen without sharing difficulty i mean i, I do think there are there are, there, are, there are joys we also share but um i think part of it has to do with the way in which almost all forms of suffering, almost all ways of grappling with the hardships of life lend themselves to loneliness and withdrawal. And so the the moments where you break through that and acknowledge this sort of open secret, we all know that other people's lives are hard and that our lives are hard. We just pretend it isn't the case a lot of the time. And that some of that comes from a certain kind of positive psychology idea that we should just look on the bright side. But what we're doing then is denying, I think, the the connection that you've pointed to, that, that there is this deep bond we have with other people that we're all grappling with with difficulty in some way or another. Um, yeah, there's a kind of anecdote about that, that, that in a way it's like the origin story of the book was at a certain point I was I think I was coming out of a clinic where I, some some other proposed treatment had failed. And I was thinking very bitterly watching people walk by thinking, you guys don't know how good you have it not being in pain. And then there was this pause and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what any of these people are going through. I have no clue. Any more than they have any idea of what I'm going through. They could be experiencing grief or loss or failure or oppression or I have no idea. And that that moment of pivoting from thinking, uh, the, the self-pity and self-isolation of suffering to the the way in which it can be a connection with other people. I think that really was the 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 what led me to write a book about the difficulties of life and in in the hope of sort of forging a, a kind of communion around them. Do we focus less on philosophically important issues such as difficulty, suffering, happiness? Do we focus on it less today than historically in human history? That's a very good and kind of hard question because it, it, you know you look back at the 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 kind of great periods of philosophy so ancient greek philosophy you have plato and aristotle reflecting on what's a good life and then the stoic philosophers and this there's a big revival of stoic philosophy so you can get the impression that this was a kind of pervasive phenomenon that like these guys were like greek and roman times everyone was super reflective i'm not sure that's really true i think often they were relatively elite enterprises that the the people who were in a position to reflect in these ways were relatively well off had leisure time to reflect and there were a lot of people i mean there were people who were enslaved there were people who were um working in ways that didn't give them the leisure to think about those questions so i think in a way philosophy had a kind of cultural centrality then that it maybe doesn't have but that cultural centrality doesn't necessarily reflect democracy it doesn't necessarily reflect a kind of inclusiveness that 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 everyone can participate. So if you look at the present moment, you know, this is very broad brush, but I, I think it, it may be that philosophy doesn't have the kind of cultural prestige and centrality that it might have had in ancient Greece. On the other hand, it is available in a way that it might not have been then, that almost everyone nowadays can read. Many people have an internet connection. And we are, in a way, in this sort of golden moment for philosophical reflection and the people are still grappling with these questions of how to live in fact the more that the world seems to fall apart the more those questions feel urgent to us 
And right now you can listen to podcasts like this or you know, go online and find resources to read and learn about philosophy. So, you know, I think I think the the shape in which philosophy becomes available to people is different now. But I'm sort of optimistic, actually, about the 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 power of philosophy to reach wider and wider audiences right now at a time when people feel uh, the the pressure of these kinds of hard philosophical questions. Yeah, and I think the way you put it, it's really important, which is it might not have the centrality that it did then, but it doesn't mean that it's less pervasive necessarily. And it definitely doesn't mean that it's less accessible. Because I think we often look back with a sense of nostalgia, even when you're talking that long ago, right? Because we know of the figures, the Aristotle and the Socrates and all that. How much of that's true? If you just look at, like you're saying, their life, it, we're choosing to pick a few people and paint a broad brush with just their wisdom. Because, look, I, I think that a lot. You can go on you know, Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you can think, oh, we're much dumber now, and I wish we could go back <laughs> to having these philosophical debates. But how much of that is true? And I, I don't think it is. No, no. I, and I think one, one of the things that I really want to kind of bring out in, in writing for a kind of non-academic audience is the way in which we're all already doing philosophy. It's not like people aren't asking themselves questions about how to live. Everyone is asking themselves these hard questions. People are grappling with difficulty. They're, they're trying to figure out what careers to pursue, whether to have kids, you know, looking at the world around them and worrying about climate change and the future and so on. And they're asking questions that are central philosophical questions. It's just that they, they might be doing it in a way that's not necessarily connected with what's going on in academic philosophy. And that's partly on academic philosophers, that, that there's a, a kind of need for people who study these questions, as I do sort of as a professor, kind of professionally, to think, okay, how do we connect what's valuable and useful in what we're doing in our classes and in published papers and like the kind of academic world? with the urgent questions other people are asking. And and again, I, I think there's a disconnect there that that's that we can close. You know, one thing, again, that really struck me when I started trying to write for a, a wider audience was that the questions that we often ask ourselves when we're having hard ethical conversations with friends are things like, am I a failure at work? Should I just quit my job and do something else? Or, or questions about parenting. And those are really hard ethical questions, but they're not on the standard roster of questions that academic philosophers talk about. And there's no reason why they couldn't be. There's no reason why the kind of tools and skills that philosophers have can't be applied more directly to questions about things like failure or parenthood or loneliness or relationships. And so I, I think there's there's room on both sides for for people to 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 ask these questions in a way that, that looks for philosophical resources and for philosophers to make those resources more available. I think that's why Stoicism is having its rebirth, because people today are starting to realize how can we leverage, I don't want to call it ancient wisdom, just philosophy throughout humanity towards today's problems. And, and I did want to spend some time with you, having you translate for us and then put your experience and your knowledge in with it on what philosophy, what we can learn from it. How would you translate the idea of the good life from historical philosophy to today? That is a great question. And I, I think one thing that I, I should, this is like the, the sort of uh, content warnings, spoiler alert thing, which is that like part of engaging with, with these ancient philosophers philosophically, is to argue with them. So I think the answer is going to take the form of, well, I, I think he was right about some things. I think he was wrong about some things. So so one thing- I that love I, that, though. I love that, though. But I just got to say it because if I was just saying, what did Aristotle say about the good life? I could just go read his stuff. That's not why, you know, I don't think that's why uh, we do any of this. So please do yeah. put your perspective over it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think, I think you know, the- part of writing about philosophy is that you expect readers to not necessarily agree with you either. Like in, in, critical engagement is, is part of the, <laughs> the, the enterprise. But so, I, I mean, one thing that Aristotle, I think, is, is, is right about and that I think is central to this, this ancient Greek tradition is the idea that what we should be focusing on is what these guys call 
eudaimonia or eupraxia, which is living well. And so the idea that what we're after is just a subjective feeling of happiness, that was something that Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics, they all argue against that idea in favor of a kind of picture on which really what we want to do is live well, which means living, engaging with reality and treating ourselves and other people in the way we should. We want to be, it's part of what we want in a way to be good people. And that means being good to other people. There's a kind of moral dimension to this as well as being good to ourselves. And that kind of shift from subjective feelings of happiness to genuine engagement with reality. I think that's one deep idea in the philosophical tradition that we shouldn't lose. I think it's something we should cling to. I think there are there are the risk in Aristotle's way of thinking about this that has a, a lot of contemporary successes is a kind of tendency to think about how to live by starting with a picture of the ideal life, saying like, what's your dream life? Aristotle has a particular kind of vision of that and then says, okay, aim for that. And that, I think, is a, a, a more problematic idea. And it's problematic in part because the ideal might not be attainable, but in part because thinking about the ideal can be a way to make yourself feel bad about your own situation, not living up to that ideal. And in part because often we're in much, much better placed to think about how to grapple with difficulty and make things sort of incrementally better than we are to be guided by some sort of picture of what an ideal life would be like that is very remote from us and whose kind of practical significance is hard to make out. So that's something that that kind of tendency in philosophy, uh, you see in political philosophy too, where people say, I'm a political philosopher, here's my vision of utopia. And the thought is, okay, but it's so distant from political reality now, what's the use of that? There's a kind of analogous mistake you can make in, in kind of thinking about your own life of just starting with something too idealized. That's something that Aristotle tends to do that I think we should try to get away from. I mean, this I could say something about the Stoics too, or I don't know if you you might have follow-ups on, on Aristotle first, or... So, I mean, no, I, I'll, no, I'll give you... No, let's go into it, yeah. My, my pitch on the Stoics, I mean, so I think there's... there's there's something deeply attractive about about Stoic philosophy, and part of it is that there is, they share this idea that what we should be living is a life of engagement with reality, that virtue, basically, being a good person is central here. It's not just a, a selfish pursuit. The thing about Stoic philosophy that I think we should be wary of is a, a kind of excessive reliance on this very attractive slogan that you should... This is in Epictetus in his handbook kind of goes over this again and again and again, that what you should do is think about what's not under your control and just let go of it and then only focus on what's under your control. And there's obviously some wisdom there. On the other hand, not caring and not about what's not under your control, like de detaching from it emotionally, I think is a, a kind of, it's intention with the goal of really engaging with reality. So a fact about Epictetus is that he was enslaved. And one of the things he had no control over was that situation. So part of what he was saying was, ah, well, if you're enslaved and there's nothing you can do about it, get over it. And when you put it that way, I think the the sense that there's something, something uh, kind of self-denying here is more vivid, that sometimes you should be angry about things even when you can't change them. Grief's another case. The Stoics are very, very down on grief because when someone's dead, what are you going to do? They were mortal, they were going to die. But I think if you don't feel the pain of grief, there's a way in which you're not taking in the reality of the loss of someone that you truly loved, of the kind of reality of your attachment. So I think Stoicism goes, there's something practically wise about not wasting time trying to change things you can't change. But the idea of emotionally detaching from it completely is, I think, a, 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 again, a failure to fully grapple with and, and lean into the difficulties of life and the way in which sometimes they just call for, they call for emotional responses that we'd, we'd be kind of, there'll be a lack of integrity in not feeling those responses. So uh, that's the, the quick take on stoicism. But I, I, Partly, what I think about the, it's the kind of revival of Stoicism is that it does reflect a genuine desire for 
philosophical reflection. And and what I hope happens is not that the, the kind of stoic revival disappears, but that the the range of philosophical ideas that people can draw on gets you know wider and, and wider. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is this idea of what do I do with things out of my control is something that has been top of mind for me for a couple years. What do we do with those things that impact us immensely might be outside of our control and we want to control it? Yeah, I think this is very difficult. I mean, it, it's related to a kind of ambivalence that I feel that maybe other people feel too about hope, that that hope on the one hand is something we, we venerate. We think of, you know, you should always have hope. You should always be hopeful. But often hoping puts you in the situation where you're, you're vulnerable to things going badly. Like, you, you know, your hopes can be dashed. And sometimes you start to have this thought, well, you know, maybe I should just give up hope. Maybe it would be really liberating to give up hope. And I think that's sort of a misdescription in an important way, but but uh, there's something to it. So again, going back to the case of chronic pain, I think there's there's a moment that I used to think of as giving up hope, as a kind of liberating giving up of hope, of saying it's not under my control, which is the moment of at some point recognizing that going from treatment to treatment, none of which worked, getting my hopes up and then dashed again and again, it was not a good plan. It wasn't working. I should just accept that this condition was not going to change and think, okay, I'm going to live with it. And I thought of myself then as giving up hope and saying, uh, I accept that this is out of my control. But actually, in retrospect, I think that's not the right way to think about what I was doing. Uh, and it involves a kind of binary black and white thinking where you say, well, do I hope or do I despair? And almost always the right question is not hope or despair. Can I control it or not? It's what should I hope for? What can I control? Like look for what you can control. And so you don't have to deny that there are things out of your control. Sometimes they are. But what you can then do is say, well, okay, what can I control? And so so I think what happened with me wasn't really that I gave up hope. It was that I gave up hope for a certain kind of magic cure and then asked, well, what could I hope for? I could hope to find a way to have a perfectly good life with this just background annoying condition. Uh, that's something I could hope for. And that shift uh, was a shift towards being realistic about what I could control and focusing my attention on that. I mean, I think you get the same phenomenon kind of writ large in um, in the case of something that that like freaks me out a lot, probably freaks some listeners out, which is climate change, where you find yourself oscillating between kind of, you read a, a, an optimistic news story and you're like, oh my God, there's hope. And then you read some terrible kind of Antarctic ice sheet melting and you're like, ah, despair. And I think the question, the problem there is we're asking the wrong question if we think, should we be hopeful or despairing? It's not a question of hope or despair. It's a question of what we should hope for. And we should hope for, you know, right now we should be hoping for international coordination on agreements that will kind of reduce fossil fuel use and so on. But if if things go badly, what should happen is not give up hope. It's, okay, well, that didn't work. What's the next thing we can hope for? What still remains possible? And I think once you shift from the black and white hope versus despair thinking to asking what can you hope for, you're sort of orienting yourself towards this question of what's under your control, what's still possible, in a way that that points you towards uh, agency without the kind of illusion that everything is under your control or you know the ideal is always possible. Is there a philosopher that you found aligned with that perspective more? Is there anybody that has informed this thinking the most in you? That's a good question. I mean, the philosopher, this isn't specifically about hope, but the philosopher whose work I, I found most energizing as I've been thinking through this is Iris Murdoch, who's also a novelist. So people may have read her novels. She's a very good novelist. She was a philosopher. She's an interesting career. She was a philosopher for the early part of her career and then sort of quit to be a novelist and then carried on doing philosophy on the side. And so she she is, is one of these people who has many careers, but she's someone for whom the idea, the central idea in her moral philosophy, her ethical philosophy, is about attention. The idea that attending to reality, attention to other people, is the kind of fundamental prerequisite for... Uh, dealing with reality 
well, is just acknowledging it. And often, if you really try to acknowledge what's going on, really describe what's happening, that's half the battle. Once you've really described whether someone was, in fact, being jealous or just anxious, or you know, you've, you've really figured out what was happening with them, the question of how to feel about it and what to do about it is already, you know, you're most of the way to answering it. And that idea, that kind of key insight, that that kind of abundant, attentive um, reflection on our reality is ethically orienting, that that gives us a, a kind of direction. That's, I suppose, the key idea that, that moves me. And so, yeah, Iris Murdoch is really the, the, the philosopher I most have, have drawn on recently. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious because I don't, like I said, I don't know a ton about it. All the things we've been talking about, one thing, if I was listening, I'd still wonder is, I get that we need to, we can change the way we think about difficulties and reality, but initially that's not going to make it feel any better. In fact, that's going to make it often feel worse. What conclusions do you start to arrive at around this idea of things are hard and many of which we can't change? What does philosophy teach us about how to actually deal with that negative reality? Well, I mean, I think often, sometimes the, the the kind of philosophical move really is just, yeah, here's what's going on. Here's a way to understand it in a way that's consoling, share it with other people, connect with others. And that, that is the consolation. But sometimes it really does, I think, point us towards changes we can make in our lives. So a good example of this is is loneliness, which is something that I, when I was writing about in the book was during the pandemic where we'd gone from a situation where people were there was kind of worried about loneliness to a situation where it was suddenly this global crisis and i think you know philosophical reflection on loneliness is partly about understanding the way in which uh the value of friendship and the value of connection which is to do with the kind of recognition of human dignity the fact that when when people don't acknowledge you or you don't have connection with others you feel like your value is is unappreciated sort of you're sort of disappearing from the world and there's a kind of philosophical description we can give that helps us understand why loneliness hurts but often that description is also has a kind of practical upshot so in the case of loneliness i think the 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 upshot from thinking about the philosophical underpinnings of why loneliness is so bad aligns with what psychologists have been saying about loneliness which is Actually, there's much more continuity between respect and compassion and just simple forms of acknowledgement, even of strangers, and deep friendship than we ordinarily realize. We often think those two things are kind of wildly different, but I think they're both ways of responding to the value of another person. And the continuity between them is confirmed by the, the social science that suggests actually even just small moments of mutually affirming interaction can already make a difference to your feelings of loneliness. You don't, you know, ultimately you might want a deep and intimate friendship, but you don't need deep and intimate friendship to start to break through the the kind of sense of uh, the, the loss of self that loneliness involves. So there's a cool study where um, social scientists had people, uh, they, they gave them the assignment of going up to someone on a, on a subway and uh, a stranger and saying, telling them one thing about themselves and asking the stranger one question about themselves. And people were like, I don't want to do this. It's not going to go well. I'm very awkward. But in fact, almost everyone carried, followed through fine. And in almost every case, the response was really positive. And afterwards, to a degree that was really surprising, people felt a kind of the, the lifting of loneliness on the basis of this tiny momentary interaction of mutual recognition and i think that's that's exactly what you would predict if you thought that the fundamental problem of loneliness has to do with your own reality being denied that other people don't recognize your reality or appreciate your own uh, value and so you know that's not a, a straight a kind of quick solution to loneliness but it does suggest that it takes much less than we think to make a, a, a difference to it and uh it also gives us kind of social practical insights like you know one of the things we've lost in an enduring way post pandemic or in whatever late stage of pandemic we are where so much more interaction 
people are working remotely and so on, is you might think, well, what have we lost? Just those, just these meaningless, tiny interactions between people in the office or on the way to work. Actually, it may well be that those meaningless, tiny interactions are much more meaningful and significant than we than we realize. So I, that's a case where I think reflecting philosophically doesn't just help us understand something, but gives us kind of practical guidance and kind of policy proposals and as kind of a help, an understanding of our social situation that we might not otherwise have. I'm so glad you touched on this. I want to spend a minute on this idea of loneliness because there's two things you said that I wrote down. One is by reflecting philosophically, as you just said, we can define it in a way that is more tangible and gives us a better way of acting upon it. Reflecting on something or thinking about something, even if it's a difficulty, doesn't necessarily mean thinking just about how it impacts you, but asking, why does it impact me? What is it saying? Yeah, and what exactly. potential solutions can I therefore, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what is it teaching me? Loneliness. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, people might be going, yeah, Chris, he said that at the beginning, but sometimes <laughs> it takes me a while, right? Like loneliness, your own reality is being denied. I've never thought about why it's so hard. I've just thought about how much I dislike it. But when you say it's because you are now challenged with, do other people recognize me? Am I adding value? Am I worthy of that connection? It all of a sudden becomes a question that you can try to answer or try to validate as opposed to just recognizing the emotion. They're two different things. I think that's totally right, right? That's ex that's exactly the, the, the perspective I have on this, which is that there's lo loneliness, like most of these negative emotions, is telling us something. There's some way in which uh, it's presenting the world to us and ourselves to ourselves. And when we see that, we can think, ah, okay, the problem is I, I just don't, I, it's not clear that I exist socially anymore. Like, wh what even am I? And then that's what makes clear that even just the small reestablishment of connection with other people, which feels so trivial when what you want is like real friendship, is at least kind of re-inscribing uh, you in the social world. And yeah, it, it, it to, to the, the, the psychological effects of that are much larger than, than you might have anticipated. I also wrote down, you know, um, when you feel lonely and you connect with somebody, you're, you're almost validating that person. Yeah. But how do you square that with the idea we were talking about earlier, which is giving away your power, right? It's saying I'm only valuable if somebody else recognizes it. And it probably gets to some of that stoic philosophy, which I find difficult, which is, well, yeah. if, if I feel lonely, it's on me to say, hey, that's just you not recognizing your own value. Why does it need to be validated by somebody else? I think that's a really great point. I mean, th th this is the kind of difficulty of kind of extracting the wisdom in the Stoic philosophy from what is distorting. Because the idea that in a certain way, you're responsible for making the best of your situation. I mean, who else is going to do it? There's some real truth in that. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but I think one way to, to reframe what's happening in those moments of interaction, and this is another thing that comes out, I, I think, both of the philosophy of loneliness and the social science is, actually, if you think of it as meeting your need, it doesn't really work. So what it, when you have those moments of interaction, it's crucial not just that you're telling someone something about yourself so that you're getting recognition, that you ask someone else something about themselves. And that part of it is not redundant. It's really, in a way, by stopping worrying about your own need for recognition, your own need for, for kind of social affirmation, and just going and uh, acknowledging and affirming someone else, where you're kind of, the focus is on them. That kind of interaction turns out to be to be kind of loneliness reducing. It's, it, it's connected with something that philosophers often puzzle over, that, that um, happiness is the kind of thing that if you seek it directly, often that doesn't work. If you're just obsessively worried about your own happiness, you're not actually going to care about enough anyone else or anything else in the world enough to to really be happy. You got to start by not worrying about your own happiness, caring about other things, and then by engaging with them, the side effect, if all goes well, will be 
yeah, you, you achieve happiness. But it's a kind of side effect of trying to engage with things properly. And I think the same is true in, in loneliness, that the, the uh, evidence is that by trying to attend to other people and meet their needs, the side effect then will be that you, you know, overcome your own loneliness. But so, so I think there's a way in which thinking of it in terms of your own need for validation, is, which is how you put it a bit earlier, it is in fact, I think, self-undermining. It, it has to be about thinking, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to do something that involves caring about connecting with, affirming, acknowledging someone else. And that's got to be the primary motive. Kieran, last question. Well, two quick questions. One is, for those that are really interested in this idea of utilizing historic philosophy, overlaying it with our experience today, what are some either philosophers or um, other resources you would reference? I'm very curious on your favorite, like, hey, go read this from Epictetus or this from, yeah. I don't know, somebody I've never <laughs> yeah, heard yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say two things that come to mind. One is it, it, Iris Murdoch, I think, is really great. She has a very short book called The Sovereignty yeah, of Good. Yeah, definitely. Do. It's, it's a little bit hard going, but really, really wonderful. Less hard going and written by someone who's sort of philosophy adjacent, but very brilliant, is um, Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, which draws a lot on philosophy, uh, especially on Diogenes, who was the cynic who lived in the streets of Athens and kind of um, was a kind of performative philosopher of rebellion against against social norms. She uh, is someone who I think is really philosophically rich and also a wonderful writer. So I, I think her book, How to Do Nothing, is, is a, a great one to recommend. Awesome. Thank you for that. And this discussion, we talked about some of the depth of, of one item or, or a few items, but in your book, you take people for a journey. So I want to recommend it. Life is hard. How philosophy can help us find our way. Something that I think many people listening right now will, will want to understand better. So we'll link to that. And Kieran, where else are you? Um, I'm sure you're going to be writing more as we, as we keep going, once you get some time from your current role. So, uh, where can people continue to keep up with your work? So if if you if if you Google me, you, it'll take you to my my website I, that has a lot of uh, kind of academic stuff. But mostly there's there's a page that has my public facing writing, book reviews, articles, and it also has a link to my Substack. So one thing I've been trying to do is every few weeks write something uh, on on a Substack called Under the Net. It's actually named after an Iris Murdoch novel that has little essays, sometimes about philosophy, sometimes about art, sometimes about novels I've read, and sometimes about questions about how to live and how philosophy can guide us through them. Fantastic. We'll definitely link to that as well. Kieran, I want to say again, thank you so much for being on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. This week's guest was Kieran Setia. It was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Kieran's book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, is available wherever books are sold. Now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you could email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.